Okay, let's uh, let's look at the title and let's read it all together. Ready, set, go. All right, so we are actually um, journeying through a book on these infusion times called um, Basic Lessons on Life. So I've got it in my bag. Maybe I should have brought it out to show you all. So we're kind of doing select uh, chapters on this. And um, kind of basically the book focuses on the beginning of Genesis and then jumps into uh, God's salvation and life. So they're basic lessons on life. So um, last week, if you were here and remember, we had Jose Luis on, uh, anybody remember what the title was? I know some of y'all were dreaming about it last week, like while it was being spoken. Okay, we started at the beginning, and so the beginning was God's intention, God's intention, God's purpose. And so anytime we talk about God's purpose, we start with Genesis. And um, so I want to do a little overview. You have some space on the back. You have some white space. You might want to draw what I'm going to draw. So I want to zoom out real quick before we get into the bad news about what happened in Genesis 3. Uh, we always want to bracket it with what God's purpose is. Come on in, guys. Who's got the extra outlines? So grab an outline up there. So basically, there's only four chapters in the Bible. There's four chapters in the Bible. How many chapters? Four. That are not soiled with Satan's footprints. There's only four chapters in the Bible that don't have Satan's footprints in them. And I want you to imagine like this. Imagine the first guy who landed on the moon. First guy, he lands on the moon, and he steps out of the spaceship, and uh, you know what he doesn't see? He doesn't see any footprints. No one's been there, unspoiled, untainted by any kind of activity. And so when we get back to Genesis 1 and 2, and when we zoom ahead to Revelation 21 and 22, Satan has no footprints in these chapters. So awesome. So what you want to do is um, Genesis 1 through 2. So this, t- this bracket is going to be the bracket of the entire Bible here. And then Revelation 21 through 22. And this is the end of the Bible. And so what we're going to do is show you God's uh, eternal purpose in these four chapters. So these four chapters actually show us God's entire purpose. God's entire purpose. And so we have um, Genesis 1. We have, again, as I call it, the what, and Genesis 2, we have the how. The what, what is God's purpose? That's what Genesis 1 is all about. How is God going to fulfill his purpose? That's what Genesis 2 is all about. And so um, it's really awesome how the Lord has inspired these chapters. There's two main thoughts in each chapter, and then when we look in a little bit further in depth in chapter 2, there's four main Words. So the two main thoughts in Genesis 1 are what? What is God's purpose in Genesis 1? Image and dominion. This, this should be like just etched into your, what does Chris say? Tattoo it on the back of your eyelids. Image and dominion. What is God's purpose? Why doesn't the Bible spend a lot of time explaining the Big Bang or you know, the development of universes? Or the weak and strong, you know, nuclear forces and gravity and electromagnetic forces and chemistry and biology and, you know, how to form a universe. God zooms past all of that, which took billions of years to form. You know, we don't believe the the world is 6,000 years old. We believe the universe is billions of years old. And God bypasses billions of years to zoom in on his purpose. 
And so the, the heavens are for the earth, the earth is for man, man is for God. How is man for God? In that he is created in God's image to express God, and he's committed with God's dominion to represent God. So the two key words are image and dominion. Okay, how is God going to fulfill his purpose to be expressed through humanity and to be represented by humanity? He's going to do it with four concepts in Genesis 2, and that is the tree of life, The river of life. We don't know that it's a river of life until we get to later in the Bible, but it is. River of life. Um, precious stones. And a built bride. The Hebrew word in Genesis 2 for the construction of Eve is God didn't make a woman. Eve was not created. She was built from pre-existing materials. She was built from Adam's rib. That becomes very crucial when we get to the end. And so this is, the two words here is two on life, two on building. So God gets image and dominion by life and building. This is the life of God, and this is the building up of something of God to satisfy him, eventually to be joined to him as his bride. So the amazing thing, uh, probably some of you guys know, is that these four things all reappear in Revelation 22. We have the tree of life in the, center of the in, the, in the center of the New Jerusalem, growing along both sides of the river, which is coursing down through built-up, redeemed humanity. That's us. And the precious stones which were deposited in the river are built up, a transformation. And the whole city is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, which is us. So the New Jerusalem is not a physical city. It's a corporate constitution of redeemed, transformed, glorified, built-up humanity joined to God as his wife. Right. Isn't this amazing? This is exhilarating. This is what the Bible's all about. And I want to read a verse to you guys just to kind of bracket this. Uh, I love this verse. And this is, uh, when you see this, this is exactly what God uh, does right here in writing the Bible. So this is Isaiah 46, 9, and 10. You definitely want to write this down. Love these verses. And this is going to specifically come into play here this morning with God's reaction to what happens in Genesis 3. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. <clears throat> okay. Remember the former things of old, that I am God and there is no one else. I am God and there is no one like me who declares the end from the beginning and things which have not been done from ancient times, saying, my counsel will stand and all my desire I will accomplish. My counsel will stand and all my desire I will accomplish. God, in this verse, tells us what he's doing in Genesis 2. When you read Genesis 2, you know what you're reading? The end of the Bible. God declares the end of the Bible. How is the Bible going to end? With transformed, regenerated, transformed, glorified humanity, transformed with those precious stones, built up as his bride. The river of life is in them. That's the Spirit. And they're living by the tree of life. That's Christ as their life supply. God declares the end from the beginning. You see that? And he says... All my counsel will stand. This is specifically awesome in view of the tragedy of the universe that, that uh, happens in, in Genesis 3. 
So although God lays all his chips on the table, he puts it all out there for us. His eternal purpose, no footprints of Satan, guess who comes in in Genesis 3? Four negative com things come in in Genesis 3. Very interesting. Uh, first one is Satan. And Satan always brings in what? Which one do y'all think? Sin or death? Who votes death? Okay, that looks like a strong majority. Hands down, who votes sin? Always got to vote with Neil, man. Sin. <laughs> if Neil's not raising his hand, just don't raise your hand either. <laughs> Let me just tell you, you know, a little secret there. So Satan, Satan is the... <laughs> Satan is the source of sin. Where did sin come from in the universe? I mean, this is a big philosophical question. Where did evil come from? Is God the author of evil? No, he's not. Satan is the source of evil. He's the source of sin. And you can read his backstory in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and you'll see the first sin in the universe. And it literally says that you were perfect in all your ways. Satan was not originally Satan. He was very good. He was actually number two in the universe. I don't know if you know that. It was God, Lucifer, Michael the archangel, everybody else. And we know that because eventually in Jude 9, it says Michael, even though uh, Satan has rebelled, Michael still will not bring a reviling judgment against Lucifer, now Satan, because of his God-ordained order in the universe. And he will not, he will not revolt against the God-ordained order like Satan revolted against the God-ordained order. And he will instead say, God rebuke you. So he still rebukes them, but he, he doesn't say, I rebuke. He says, God rebuke you. So Satan corrupted himself in Isaiah 14. He became an evil source. And we're going to see at the end of this, he became a father. He became a father, and he has children. And those children are expressing him. It's a perversion. And a, uh, I mean, you could say it's a, um, it's a, it's, I'm, I'm looking for the word. What do they call it when they take over a plane? It's a hijack. It's a hijack of God's eternal purpose. Satan hijacks God's eternal purpose and takes the man created for God and does the very purpose that God has in mind, except with Satan's evil desire. We're going to see all this in the outline. Now he becomes a begetting father. He becomes a dispenser. He produces children. Those children are expressing and representing him. It's a tragedy. Satan brings in sin. So we see the, the first sin in humanity occurring in Genesis 3. What does sin always bring in? Now here's the other part of the room. And does anyone have a verse for that? Okay, that's, that's a pretty good one. What does Romans 5.12 say? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a really good one. It says, through, through one man, through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and... and, and through sin, death has been passed on to all, for all have sinned. That's a really good one. There's probably even a better one. Does anyone have a better one? Yeah, what does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. So anytime you sin, you know what you get paid? You get paid death. So sin always brings in death. That's Romans 6.23. Death, sin and death, and Satan always bring in a fourth item. And this is the fourth word we see in Genesis 3. So we see Satan, right, in Genesis 3, the serpent. We see sin in Genesis 3, uh, eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God said don't do. We see death being brought in in Genesis 3 because God said the day, the day, not, not 900 years later, which is how long Adam lived, 
the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So their spirit was deadened. We'll see this in a second. Sin immediately brought in death. And also, what's the fourth thing? Not Reese, because I've gotten into this with him. So I know you know this. <laughs> what's the fourth thing? What's the fourth negative thing we see creeping on stage in Genesis 3? It's, what God, it's how God reacts to this situation. Something gets brought in that's also very negative. Say it louder. A curse. A curse. Satan is cursed, number one, praise the Lord. But also humanity gets brought under a curse. The ground is cursed. Women, Katie Lee could probably testify of the curse you know, a couple days ago. God said, you, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. Part of the curse. Part of the curse. God didn't mean for it not to be fun you know, or, or unpleasant to, to bear kids. That's part of the curse. Man, uh, touch the curse walking up here. Anybody else? Me and Hudson were touching, touching the curse on the drive over here because my car doesn't have AC. Ah! So we were sweating. We were sweating. Not too bad, though. Not too bad. Yeah, it wasn't that sweaty. But the part of the curse with man is man has to work, and it says, by the sweat of your brow, the, the earth will yield its produce to you. So now the, the earth is resisting man. The earth is resisting man. So this is part of the curse. Okay, the amazing thing is, these four negative characters come in in Genesis 3. You know where they leave? You know where they exit stage left out of the universe forever? Revelation 20. The third to last chapter from the Bible. They came in the third chapter in the Bible, and they leave, praise the Lord, once and for all. Goodbye. We're all going to say a big hallelujah. Let's do that right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Goodbye. We will never see you again. And in this chapter, it says, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. It says death is cast into the lake of fire. Death in Hades. And since Satan is gone, sin is gone. There's no more possibility for sin. And also it says there will no longer be a curse. So this is the beautiful parallel construction of God creating the Bible. He's declaring the end from the beginning. His, here's, here's his intention. We see that coming out here, right? Tree of life, river, uh, materials, and bride. And then, unfortunately, these characters come in the picture and just damage, hijack God's eternal purpose. But praise the Lord, they get tossed here. They go out. Maybe I should do it down here. So they, they go out into the lake of fire. Okay. Isn't this awesome? This is an awesome way to present the Bible to people. I hope you guys would internalize this, learn this, uh, learn how to present it. You don't have to do it exactly how I did, um, but present this. So what is, what is Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 all about? It's about two things. It's about two things. It's bringing back in life and building, and it's destroying Satan. It's crushing Satan. So here is the cross standing at the center of history. The cross, redemption, is not God's eternal purpose. It's brought in to deal with Satan, but in God's divine design and wisdom, through the cross, he also releases the divine life and begets and produces the church. So the church comes into existence the same day that Satan is crushed. Okay, so I just want to start this little um, kind of overview here. Does this kind of make sense to everybody? Yeah. 
Yes. Isn't this an inspiring portrait of the Bible? I mean, just in, in six chapters, you can really understand the whole course and history and trajectory of the biblical revelation. Okay, let's jump in here. We're going to zoom in now on Genesis 3 and see Satan's plot. So let's read uh, number one and then these three verses. Number one, ready, set, go. Satan's plot. All right, uh, everybody on 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, ready, set, go. Okay, and then uh, let's have the brothers on 2 Corinthians 2.11 and sisters on Ephesians 6.11. Ready, set, go. That we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Sisters? Okay, so Satan's plot uh, is, is unveiled here in 2 Corinthians 11. And this verse, I like this verse because it shows us what happens here... And these chapters, especially Genesis 3, is not just history. It's not just a story. Actually, I went to a school with the girl. She was in my class. And I remember we were walking one time over to LBJ, and she, she knew I was a Christian. And she asked me, she was like, um, hey, I've always had this question. Is like the Adam and Eve story, was that like, is that real history? Or is that like, is that just a myth, you know? Is that just like a creation story? Is that just like kind of, is there really a person named Adam and Eve? Is, was there really a serpent? Did this thing really happen? Or is that just kind of a Christian understanding of why there's evil? You know, just like Greek mythology. Or why is there thunder? Why is there lightning? The gods are angry. You know, and it's not, that's not real, right? And so this, this really happened. There's a historical Adam. There's a historical Eve. There's a historical embodiment of Satan and a serpent. And there's a historical fall. But this chapter doesn't just unveil a story to us, that, a real story. It unveils Satan's strategy. And that's what 2 Corinthians 11 comes in handy for. It shows us Satan is still doing the same thing he did in Genesis 3. Look at that. Paul is worried. I'm jealous. You're supposed to be the bride of Christ. Look, this bride, you are supposed to be this bride of Christ. And I'm jealous over you with the jealousy of God because I'm, I'm afraid that just as Satan seduced Eve and tempted her to fall and desert God's eternal purpose, the same thing is happening to you through him. You see that? Verse 3, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your thoughts would be corrupted from the simplicity and the purity toward Christ. You know what's simple and pure towards Christ? Enjoying him as life. It's the simplest thing there is. Life is simple. Satan's strategy is to come in and corrupt our thoughts. And we'll see this. We'll see the process of his attack. But this is his strategy. Take us away from Christ, the enjoyment of Christ, which is so simple. Isn't enjoying Christ simple? Isn't calling simple? Are we, are we ashamed to be simple in our enjoyment of Christ? No. I hope not. I hope we wouldn't be corrupted toward the simplicity. Think calling on the Lord. Man, that's so, that's childish. That's, uh, that's mindless repetition. That's, uh, that's not technical. Okay, I agree. But I'm not going to get corrupted from the simplicity of enjoying the Lord by saying, Oh, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let people say it's simple. I'm going to keep saying, Oh, Lord Jesus, Amen. because I'm enjoying Christ. Right. Is praying the word simple? Very simple. 
so anyways, I just bring this up because Satan's strategy today is still to corrupt our thoughts, bring in questionings about the simple enjoyment of Christ to bring us away from the enjoyment of life, which again is how God is going to get his what. So if he takes us away from the how, God can't get his eternal purpose, which is the what. And then I like these next two verses, uh, 2 Corinthians 2 and Ephesians 6, because it shows us why do we need to know Satan's plot? Why do we need to know Satan's plot? Do you need to get by over here? Okay. Okay. So these two verses, look, I love it. They both start with that. You need to know Satan's plot that you not get taken advantage of. For we're not ignorant of his schemes. We see his schemes in Genesis 3, and we are able to stand against his stratagems in Genesis 3. All right, my question is, what is the difference between a stratagem and a strategy? This is in your third verse, Ephesians 6.11. It says, Paul is saying, this is in the section on the, the corporate warrior, the church putting on the whole armor of God. And Paul says that you may be able to stand against the stratagems of the devil, not the strategies of the devil. So what's the difference? Anybody been reading their dictionary lately? Okay, a stratagem is a strategy that involves deception. That's the difference. A strategy is just a plan of action. You know, you have a strategy, right? I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That's my strategy, you know, four-part strategy. And so it could be very straightforward. But a stratagem is a strategy that involves subterfuge, that involves deception, that involves a mask. That's a hidden approach that makes you think it's one thing, but it's actually, boom. It's what we did in World War II with D-Day. It was, it was not just a strategy. If you ever read the history, I mean, a bunch of the bros went with Tim to go see the, the 3D IMAX. Was that last year or two years ago? We watched the D-Day invasion. It was unbelievable. And it's not just the strategy was storm the beach, you know, shoot our guns, climb the hill, take over. That's kind of the basic of the strategy. But we had a big stratagem. We made them think the, the attack was coming over here at this other beach. And anyways, uh, Caitlin can tell you about this spy. We watched this documentary one time about this spy, Agent Garbo. He was working both sides. He was a spy for the Germans. And he was a spy for the, for the British. But he was only really a spy for the British. But he was playing the Germans. And the Germans got so tricked by him, he's the only guy in World War II who got a medal on both sides of the, of the war. <laughs> the Germans never found out. They gave him a medal, and the British knew what was going on. They gave him a medal. And the Germans, after the war, came, after the war ended... The Germans, they, they met him secretly. You know, all the Nazi SS soldiers are going to Brazil and going into hiding and fleeing the country. Right. And they met him, and they're like, oh, we're so sorry about the turn of events. We thought we were going to win this one. And, hey, here's a bunch of money. And, you know, if you know, the Nazi cause, if it rises again, we'll find you and we'll you know, enlist your services. And they gave him a medal. <laughs> and he was like, thanks, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the British guy. So the American and British strategy against the Germans and the Nazis was a stratagem. It wasn't just, let's attack the beach, let's storm Normandy. It's, let's make them think this is happening, and when they're, all their uh, attention is over here, boom, we'll blindside them. That's what Satan does to us. He doesn't just attack us, and we'll see here in a little bit, he always wears a mask. Always. And look, he came not as Satan, not in red fury and a pitchfork and horns, diabolical, diabolical power and terror. We would have run away. He came 
subtly as a serpent. Okay, so anyways, let's go on to the next point here. This is leading us into point two here. Uh, let's read two together. Ready, set, go. All right, uh, let's all read these three verses. Just let's read them one, two, three. Ready, set, go. Now the serpent was more crafty than every other animal, and the great dragon was cast down. Okay, I love this last one. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. Go. Okay, when we read Genesis 3, 1, Eve, Adam and Eve have no idea who they're dealing with. They have no idea. They think it's just an animal, talking animal. <laughs> you know, anyways. Maybe that wasn't weird back then. I have no idea. Uh, but it's certainly, they certainly thought they were only dealing with a serpent. They only thought they were dealing with a serpent. Anyway, that's a great question to dig into. If you're a guy, I know guys like that kind of stuff. Another one is, did Satan have arms and legs? That's another one everyone likes. I mean, serpents. Okay, anyways, but he's masked here. See, he's masked as a serpent. But by Revelation 12, he's unmasked. See that? The great dragon was cast down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan. So by the time we get to Revelation 12, right around here, we see, oh, that serpent, that ancient serpent was wearing a mask. That was the devil there, incarnating before... God became a man. Satan became a creature. See, he's always anticipating. We'll see that too in a second. And uh, he's hiding. He's hiding. And then 2 Corinthians 11, I love this. He transfigures himself into an angel of light. So anytime Satan comes to us, he doesn't come out front and go, that's Satan. Otherwise, we would never fall for it. We would run away. He hides himself behind a question, a subtle question about something, about the Bible, about the authority of the Bible, about the, you know, is it worth it doing the internship? You know, I don't know. That kind of questioning always comes from the hiding serpent. Right. Is it really worth it giving my life to the Lord? You know, someone may ask you that. Someone with a quote, quote, good intention. Yeah. Are you sure you want to go to a Bible college and waste your degree? I mean, you know, it's obsolete in five years. Who was that, Paul, right? Yeah. It's obsolete in five years. Where is that question coming from? Right. That's a hidden attack. That's a stratagem. Behind a lot of these questions sometimes, is calling on the Lord really in the Bible? Is calling on the Lord? A lot of these kind of subtle attacks are from the hiding serpent, the hiding enemy. Okay, one uh, good thing this helps us understand, though. Uh, well, let's go, on to, um, let's go on to look at three here. Uh, preventing God by contacting man earlier. This is also something Satan always does in his attack, his plot. He anticipates God's move and copies it and moves first to prevent God from doing that very move. Now, I'll say that again. Satan's strategy is to copy God's move and move first in that move to prevent God from being able to do that move. So, for instance, a couple of things here. God's intention is to dispense himself into man. Amen? Amen. Is that true? Yes. Okay, you know what Satan does? He copies that, and in Genesis 3, he injects illegally, his life into man. God's desire, he does it first. And now God can't do it as is until the cross. So he prevents God's move by moving in that area first. Okay, God's desire 
is to be expressed corporately, right? Amen? Yes. Do we believe that? Yes. Okay, Satan, again, copies God's move, anticipating it, and preventing God from having that move by moving first. Now, uh, you have here, in, from Genesis 3 on, Satan being expressed. And we'll see this. I got a verse on the sheet that's going to... I never saw it in this light until I started getting into this. Satan is being expressed on the earth. We know God wants to reproduce himself in many children. Now Satan has many children. The Bible says this. And uh, so anyways, God wants to become a creature. God wants to become a man. The great creator became my savior. Satan anticipates he becomes a serpent, a creature, and interacts with man on that level to where man can comfortably interact. Anyways, the point is um, Satan wants to prevent God's move by moving first. Okay, then let's go on to uh, point four here, contaminating man's soul. Let's all read one together. Ready, set, go. Okay, Genesis 3, 1 through 4 here. So what we're looking at now is how in Satan's plot, he wants to damage the entire tripartite vessel. Spirit, soul, and body, or body, soul, and spirit. Uh, he has a certain order in doing it. So point four, point five, and on the back, point six, we're going to look in detail at all three parts of man and how they were all damaged uh, in the fall. Okay, so the first one is man's soul. So we're going to have three points under this because man's mind, emotion, and will were all contaminated. So probably what you want to do is on point four, circle the word contaminating. On point five, circle the word ruining. So each one of these has a very specific uh, verb here that Satan did. He contaminated our soul. Point five, he ruined man's body. Flip on the back. Point six, circle deadening man's spirit. Contaminating, ruining, deadening. Okay? Body, soul, and spirit. And then as we get into point one, two, and three under four, this is all on the soul. I want you to uh, circle in point one, doubt, causing the human mind to doubt God's word. Point two, stirring up the human emotion to dislike God. So circle dislike. And then number three, seducing the human will to desert God's purpose and choose the tree of knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. So circle desert. So that's what we're about to look at. Three Ds here on um, the triple threat here to the, to the soul. Okay, so first point, this has a lot of application. Satan, when he comes, like I said, he always comes in the form. There it is. Ah. Question mark. Easy way to remember it here. You know, you just draw this right here. A question mark, it looks like a serpent. I mean, that, you know, this is kind of like a way to remember it. That's not like where it really came from. But a question mark, you got to remember, sometimes a subtle questioning about God's word, in fact, always a subtle questioning about God's word, is the attack of the serpent to bring in doubt into your mind, to doubt God's word. So you see that in Genesis 3 and 4, it says, The serpent said to the woman, did God really say? See that question, that subtle, insinuating question. Did God really say that? Did he really say that? And then in four, it kind of lashes out a little stronger here, but again, in inflicting doubt on the mind, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So God said, don't eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan said, wait, did God say that? Really? You're not going to die. And so this thought 
contaminates the, the mind. And the mind starts doubting God's word. And so this happens in a lot of places uh, in life. Um, uh, for instance, you know, uh, I know some of the brothers have taken classes, religious studies classes at UT. Has anyone ever taken a religious studies class? A couple of people. I've never taken one, so I'm just going off of their word. But I've heard numerous stories about this. There are uh, a couple of professors who the whole reason... They're teaching a class on Christianity yeah. is to undermine your faith, totally. to undermine your faith. And the whole class is actually not a positive, beneficial pursuit, you know, in God's word. It's subtle question after subtle question coming from the area of science. Right. How can science and, and the Bible be complementary? Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord for Dr. Ken Diller, right? Amen. Now we have a class that's opening up the compatibility there. So it's coming from the the area of science doubting God's word from creation standpoint, from a history standpoint, from this and that, just undermining, undermining, causing us to lose faith in God's word. Okay, or it's coming from a morality standpoint. Well, is it, you know, is it really, is that really a sin? Is that really a sin? Look, there's verses that say it's not a sin. And so from a scientific standpoint, from a morality standpoint, Satan's strategy is to doubt God's word and raise up a questioning in us. Okay, okay. so let's go on to the, uh, oh, I wanted to hit this one here. Let's look at Acts 14.2. Some of you all have heard us talk about, you know, oh, someone got poisoned. I don't know, has anyone heard that terminology and you're kind of like, why aren't we taking him to the hospital, you know? Why aren't we moving quicker? Well, this is where this comes from, Acts 14.2. Let's read this all together. Ready, set, go. Sorry, I should have warned you about that bracket there. So the Greek word for ill-affected is literally poison. And most translations, ESV, most translations have the word poison their minds. So next time you hear someone say, oh, he got poisoned, we don't mean literally poison. We mean his, some questioning got brought up in his mind that's ill-affecting his mind. Yes. And so this happens t- sometimes with people who meet with us on campus. They hear something, there's a questioning, all of a sudden, you know what? There's a distance, there's a... A deserting of us and there's an ill affecting of the mind the thoughts and they're hiding something they're suspicious they are kind of weird that, that whole concept comes from the subtle serpent injecting a question and like I said sometimes Satan attacks I just wrote a couple down here's six truth points that Satan attacks or practices number one the subjective experience of Christ and this is mainly from a religious perspective so obviously no one in the world you know, and who's not a believer cares about, it's like, y'all, you guys are delusional anyways, <laughs> you know, we're not going to talk about this, sub- who cares, you guys are whack, there's not even a God, so it's not coming from unbelievers, but from other Christians, Satan through them, just like here in Acts 14 too, through the religious people, Satan questions the subjective experience of Christ, isn't God too transcendent to be experienced by us, and so you may start to wonder, yeah, what about that, another thing he attacks is, the reality of the human spirit. That point is so attacked that most people don't even know they have a human spirit. And another way he attacks that is even if you know, he attacks your exercise of your human spirit. Stop stop being weird, bro. That's just weird, calling on the Lord. I'm just trying to be real, okay? That guy's trying to touch the Lord. Amen. 
Don't let the subtle serpent come in and question his enjoyment of Christ. Exactly. You're driving in some brother's, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. See, Satan, if you know you have a spirit, the next attack is going to say, attack the exercise of the spirit by saying, brother, it's kind of weird. It's kind of just, you're being too much, bro. I know calling on the Lord's in the Bible, but why do you got to do it all the time? Exactly. I mean, haven't we heard this sometimes? Probably some, it's coming out of my mouth sometimes, but we need to recognize his attack so that we can reject it. Here's another thing he attacks, calling on the Lord. Why do you got to call on the Lord? I mean, that thing is so much in the Bible, it's, it's almost laughable that somebody would say it's unbiblical to call on the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's like 88 times or more, right? Okay, the prophesying of all saints. Another point Satan attacks, a truth point or a practice. Why don't you guys just let one man talk? Read it, 1 Corinthians 14. Here's a big one. Christ is the life-giving spirit. I'm in. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. The Lord Jesus Christ is the spirit. If Satan undermines that point and causes us to doubt that point, you know what he just took away? The life-giving part of it, which is how God fulfills his purpose. And here's the last one I wrote down on a truth point that Satan attacks, uh, the reality of overcomers. He wants to attack that, so obviously he's scared of overcomers, so he doesn't want anyone to believe in them, so no one will actually, in fact, overcome, because it's the overcomers who are going to deal, deal the death blow to Satan. Okay, I need to speed up here, but um, one thing I want to show you all about the, about the hiding, subtle questioning about Satan in the mind is the Bible also shows us that we know from Genesis 3, whatever Satan attacks, this actually becomes a key to us. It becomes a huge help to us. Yeah. Because we know whatever Satan attacks, that's what God wants. That's what God wants. Why would Satan attack something if it was inconsequential, if it didn't matter? So Satan attacks these points because they're the very points that will help him help God fulfill his purpose. Okay, let's go on to the next point, two. Uh, let's read this in the verse all together. Ready, set, go. Stirring up the human to dislike God. Genesis 3, 5, go. Okay, so here it, is, here it is again, the next verse, uh, disliking God. So Satan, in his questioning of the woman here in Genesis 3, wants man to feel that God is uh, withholding something good and beneficial to him. Wait, did God really say don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't, did he not tell you that if you eat that tree, you're going to be like him? And you yourself will be able to know good from evil? So see, that thought makes us feel like God is withholding something good and beneficial, causing us to dislike his heart toward us, yeah. question his heart. Maybe he's not so good. Why can't I do what everyone else does? Why can't I do what all my friends are doing? Why do my parents, why do the brothers, why does the church discourage this kind of lifestyle? Well, do, are they, do they not want me to have a good college experience? They not want me to be normal? Okay, so we dislike God. Uh, step number two of alienating us from God. Let's go on to point three here. Read it all together in the verse. Ready, set, go. Genesis 3, 6, go. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and 
Okay, so there it is, the final step. Eventually, through the mind being poisoned, through the emotion being stirred up to not like God, eventually the will chooses and deserts God and chooses the tree of knowledge. And from there on out, man became three things in his soul. So I want you to write these three verses down. Colossians 1.21 says, Man is now an enemy of God in his mind. An enemy of God in his mind. This is from Genesis 3 on. Every single human being on earth, every single human being on earth, before they're regenerated, is an enemy in their mind. Romans 1.30, they're haters of God in their emotions. Every single human being before regeneration, whether it's explicit or implicit, is hateful to God, hateful to God, disliking. And Isaiah 1-2, a rebel against God in their will. So an enemy in the mind, a hateful in the emotion, and rebellious in the will. This is the disastrous consequence of the soul being contaminated. Okay, let's real quick, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're pretty much out of time, so I'll just kind of fly through this. Point five ruining man's body, and also Chris will touch on this some next week, so I'll just leave it to him. Romans 7 shows you that Satan is in man's flesh as sin, so you can track the personification of sin. Sin deceived me, sin captured me, sin killed me. How can sin do any of these things unless it's a personification representing a living, active, evil person in us? So sin is in our flesh. So transformation is not good enough. You know what we need to be? We need to be glorified. So we're not, our, our final hope is not just to be changed, but to be glorified. This very flesh will be changed, and sin will be pushed out. Point six, let's flip to the back here real quick. Deadening man's spirit and alienating man from God. Ephesians 2.1 says, You, though dead, in your offenses and sins. So man did die the day that he ate of it, but where did he die? This is a very good way to show people that the spirit is different from the soul. Did man die in the body? No. Nope. Adam lived more than 900 years. He's gonna, he was much more alive than we are in his body. Did man die in the soul? Nope. Did man still think? Did man still feel? Did man still decide? For sure. The man's not dead in the soul. Did man die in the spirit? Yes. And so here, the spirit... What is death? I want you to write this down. Death means two things. Loss of function and loss of sensation. That's what death is. When you're dead, there's no function. When you're dead, there's no sensation. So I could kick you, slap you, and you won't say anything back. And so man's sense of God is gone. That's why most people don't believe there is a God, because the spirit's dead. It's not functioning. It has no connection with God. It's like your phone's been on, as I was explaining to one freshman at breakfast on Wednesday, it's like your phone has been on airplane mode your entire life. And then when you called on the Lord, you know what happened? Someone switched off airplane mode, and all of a sudden it exploded with communication and text messages. Yes, I love you. Yes, I am the life-giving spirit. Yes, I died for you. God's communicating. Boom, boom, boom. And now you're getting all the communication. And now you, you, you finally hear, I've heard of something called the World Wide Web. I've heard of something called the Internet. And now I'm connected. Wi-Fi, exactly. So your spirit comes alive and can connect with all that communication of God to man. Praise the Lord. All right, uh, let's go into number seven here. Usurping man to frustrate God from fulfilling his purpose. I already kind of touched on this, but I want to look at these verses with you all in detail here. Let's, uh, 
Let's, let's just read through them all, brothers, sisters, and everybody. Okay, brothers, 2 Timothy 2.26. And they may return to soberness out of the snare of the devil, having been caught alive by him. Sisters, John 8.44. Go. All right, everybody, Matthew 23, 33. Okay, so in 2 Timothy, we see that not only has man been prevented from fulfilling God's purpose, he's been captured. He's been captured alive. You see that? Why did Satan capture us alive? Because he wants to use us for his evil desire. And you see that in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So fallen man is expressing Satan's desires. Y'all see that? And so much has he been poisoned. He is a serpent. Man is a serpent. Man are, men are brood of vipers before regeneration. But praise the Lord, after this tragedy comes the gospel. So God himself appears on the scene next, and Adam and Eve are hiding out of fear of the judgment pronounced on them, but what does God do? He takes the role of the first evangelist, and he preaches the gospel to man and says, I myself will become one of you. I will enter into the chaos. I will enter into humanity. I will put on the damaged flesh and have no participation with the sin of the flesh. I will be as a serpent on the cross, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. That's why the Father forsook the Son on the cross in the last three hours, because when he looked at his beloved Son, he did not see the Son of God. He saw a snake representing all the sins of the world. Jesus on the cross became the unique sinner in all of human history, and he took on sin in his flesh. That's what Peter says. He Put, he took up our sins on the tree in his flesh. And at the cross, we saw the depth of God's hatred against sin and the depth of God's love for humanity. Amen. That he would go to such great extent to recover rebels, enemies, and haters of him because he would not forsake his eternal purpose. Amen. The love of God shone out from the cross. And now all the world knows God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, I'm King Jamesified here, shall not perish but have everlasting eternal life. Praise the Lord. So uh, I just want to end with this quote here. Isn't that good? You can look at the verses later. God himself became a, a human. Christ on the cross was viewed as a snake, as a, as a sinner and paid the price that we can never pay. So I want to read this quote uh, just to end, in view of the fall. You know, probably most of us wish the fall never happened, right? If you wish the fall never happened. Sin is horrible. We all participate in sin, and we, we feel ashamed. We feel humiliated. We feel low. We feel like giving up. But through our failures and through the fall, we have a rare opportunity to realize the depth of God's love for us. So I want to read this quote to you all here. Um, this is from the life study of Genesis, chapter 37. Although Satan, working through fallen man, had apparently driven God out from earth, 
God is sovereign and cannot be defeated or frustrated by any kind of attack. All of Satan's work simply affords God an excellent opportunity to display his wisdom. Amen. Although sometimes I was sorry that I was a fallen person, most of the time I rejoiced because I had been redeemed, regenerated, and regained. Because of the fall, our relationship with God the Father is sweeter and more meaningful than it would have been without the fall. Did y'all catch that? Let me read that again. Because of the fall, our relationship with God the Father is sweeter and more meaningful than it would have been without the fall. We never would have had the great demonstration of God's unbelievable love for us. And we would never have the appreciation that in my depths of depravity, God so loved me. God never erased me. If you will spend some time to review your life, I believe you will weep, not in sorrow, but in sweet remembrance of God's wise and gracious work. When we enter into eternity, we shall exercise our spirit and recall our time on earth. And the memory of that time will be sweet, tasteful, and meaningful. Isn't that awesome? So through the fall, our relationship with God is actually, in a sense, more sweet, more meaningful, because now we see God's wisdom, God's love, God's unchanging desire for us to bring us all the way through the fall, cast Satan in the lake of fire, and be joined to him in love and life union for eternity. So praise the Lord. I just felt like I could not give a message all on Satan, so I wanted to turn it at the end there to the Lord and to his love for us and for his unchanging purpose, and even seeing the flip side of the fall, how our relationship could be sweeter and our love could be more intense for the Lord. How about we just pray with our neighbor two by two, thank the Lord for his love for us, and we'll do what's next.